This morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel, looking at chapters 24 to 26. But before we open the word, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, I thank you that we can come together as your people to hear your word proclaimed. And as we look at the life of David and see how you were the rock of his salvation, uh, that, that your word would not go out without accomplishing its purpose, that it would find fertile soil in our hearts and would take root deeply in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so last week, Andy left off a kind of a critical moment in David's life. Saul had found him in the wilderness because he'd been betrayed by the Ziphites who told Saul where David was. And so David had, had fled to this mountain, the rock of Hakaliah, and Saul was hot on his heels, and it seems like Saul had probably split his army in two and come around both sides of the mountains to trap David and pin him there. And these hills around the mountain were filled with caves, but my guess is David didn't have time to hide in any of them because Saul was so close behind him and could see him. So he's trapped. David's outnumbered five to one. And at the last moment, when it seems like all hope is lost, a messenger comes running up to Saul with his urgent message that the Philistines are attacking, they're raiding the land. Saul, you and your army are needed for, you know, the actual defense of Israel, not this baseless feud that you have. And so Saul leaves. God had provided David with this miraculous escape at the last moment. And so from there on out, this mountain is referred to not just as the Rock of Hakaliah, but the Rock of Escape. And David figures now that Saul isn't right behind him, that this is a pretty good place to stay for now. He has kind of a fortress there. And they have all these hills they can hide in. This is as good a place as any to wait. And sure enough, after Saul deals with the Philistines, he comes back and starts looking for David again. Partly because David's immediately betrayed again by the Ziphites. And they tell him, hey, David's still over there. And so Saul's coming back and he's looking. But David has time this go-round. And so they hide in the caves. And Saul and his army are marching through looking for him. And Saul decides that he needs to relieve himself and he doesn't want to do it in public, so he goes into one of the caves. And it just happens to be the cave that David and his men are hiding in at the back. It seems like God has given David another miraculous opportunity for salvation. 
Saul's been served up to him on a silver platter. He's alone in the cave. David and his, all his men are in there. Now is his chance. And so David's men recognize this and begin to frantically whisper to him in chapter 24, verse 4. The men, the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do with him as it shall seem good to you. David, you're never going to get another chance like this. He's right there. He's alone. He's unprotected. God served him up to you. He said, I will give your enemy into your hand to do with as you please. You've been hiding out in the wilderness. You're God's anointed. All you have to do is reach out and take what God's already promised you. No more running. No more hiding in these caves. No more being a king trapped in the wilderness. And David gets up and begins silently slipping towards his enemy. And he extends out his blade and he cuts the corner off of Saul's robe. Not exactly the death blow his men were waiting for. And not even that, but it says that after he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, that his heart is, has struck him over what he's done. Why? I mean, Saul is literally trying to kill you for no reason whatsoever. He has this insane jealousy that has no basis in reality, and you're feeling racked with guilt over the fact that you ruined his robe? Why? Well, remember back in chapter 15, when God rejects Saul, when Samuel tells Saul that God has rejected you, Saul grabs Samuel's robe and the robe tears away. And Samuel looks at Saul and he says, just like my robe was torn, the kingdom's going to be torn away from you and given to someone better. So now back in the cave, Saul is in David's hands, and David sneaks up, and he cuts off the corner of the robe, and immediately he realizes this, this isn't right. This isn't what God said it was going to look like. God said he was going to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to someone else. And instead, I reached out and I took his robe myself. The picture David's created here is exactly the thing that Saul was afraid of, that David was going to take his kingdom by force for himself. And so David realized that any act of aggression, even something as small and mundane as this, when it's directed at God's anointed, is wrong because that's not how God 
is going to accomplish his purposes. God is going to take the kingdom from Saul, and he's going to give it to David. David can't take it for himself. So David restrains his men. He, he possibly may have had to physically restrain them to protect Saul's life. So Saul finishes his business, and he exits the cave, completely unaware of what's been going on. And David takes a calculated risk. He leaves the cave too, and he calls out to Saul in verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he, for, against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. In other words, what he's saying is, if there were wickedness in my heart, if there was violence in my heart towards you, it would have come out in the cave. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And Saul is moved by this plea of David's. He's moved to the point of tears, as he says in verse 16. Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And then verse 20. Now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. One might be tempted to think that the hostilities can cease now. David's act of mercy should have proven once and for all that there was no harm in his heart towards Saul. Saul knows now that David is going to be no threat to him, so there should be peace between them. But David also hinted at the problem back in verse 13 when he said, out of the wicked comes wickedness. True repentance can only come 
from the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit has already departed from Saul. And we know that David understands that he still is in danger, because while Saul returns to his place, David stays in the wilderness. He goes back to the stronghold at the rock. The rock has proved his salvation, and he doesn't want to leave it. He remains the king in the wilderness. And as we enter into chapter 25, something world-shattering happens for the Israelites. Even though we're only given the one verse on it. Verse 1, now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Samuel, who had been the preeminent figure in Israel for so long, the last of the judges. This is literally the end of an era for Israel. And more than that, the king who's in power is half mad with jealousy. And the man who's been anointed as God's king to replace him is hiding in the wilderness. This would have been a time of uncertainty and fear for the Israelites, feeling like they were lost and leaderless, not knowing what was going to come. David probably felt similarly about it, because we're told immediately after that that he left the wilderness of Engedi, left the rock of escape, and went to the wilderness of Paran instead. He probably assumed that the passing of Samuel would only inflame the worst of Saul's impulses. And probably thought, it's best to go somewhere else where Saul doesn't know exactly where I am for now. So David is still in the wilderness, even though he's in a different part of Israel. But he doesn't stay idle, he and his men. There are flocks of sheep around, and they just kind of naturally start helping take care of the sheep and protecting them and protecting the herdsmen. His first instinct was to go back to what he knew and protect the sheep and the other shepherds. He's God's anointed king. He's running for his life, but he still has a heart of a shepherd. He sees their need. He protects them. And all these flocks are owned by the same wealthy man named Nabal, we're told. And eventually it comes time for the flocks to be sheared. And this was a big deal for the shepherds. They lived hard lives. And this was one of the few times a year that they got to actually like enjoy the fruits of their labors. And David figures, well, you know, it, it's reasonable that we should come to the feast too. Like, we're not Nabal's employees. We, we helped without being asked. We helped without being paid. He's had an especially good year this year because of us. Shouldn't we get to enjoy this celebration too? And so he sends a delegation of 10 of his men to Nabal to ask for an invitation to the festival. In verses 6 through 8, 
He says, thus shall you greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give us whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. This seems like a perfectly reasonable request to David. You haven't lost anything because you've had us. Let us join the feast with you. Let us partake in the spoils with you. This wasn't some sort of like protection racket, like he's the godfather saying, it's a sh- it would be a shame if something happened to those nice sheep of yours. No, he's saying, we, we helped without being asked. We've done it without any sort of recompense. Can we join in the feast? It seemed reasonable to David. But Nabal isn't exactly the reasonable type. We're told when he's introduced earlier in chapter 25 that he's harsh and badly behaved. In fact, the name Nabal was probably a nickname whispered behind his back because it literally just means fool. So Nabal hears David's request and he responds in keeping with his name, verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Who's David? He's a nobody, a runaway slave hiding from his rightful master out in the wilderness. David is no king and he'll have no share in my profit. Now, Saul, that's a king. David? No. David responds poorly in verse 13. David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. I'm going to kill him. I've had it. I'm done with it. I didn't ask for much, and he's going to refuse me the little bit that I do ask for? No. I've been misjudged and mistreated and slandered and betrayed one too many times. It's over. Someone is finally going to pay for treating God's anointed so poorly. And he even goes on to swear in verses 21 and 22, David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill all those guys that we protected out in the wilderness all those months. They're dead. Thankfully for both Nabal and David, 
there was one cooler head to be found. Because Nabal had a wife named Abigail who stands in sharp contrast to her foolish husband. We're told that she was wise and discerning. And when one of Nabal's servants heard Nabal's response to David's men, he snuck away to Abigail, which I have to believe is probably not the first time a servant snuck away to the wife to try to get her to fix something Nabal had done. And he tells her everything that Nabal had said, and he attests to the fact that David and his men stood as a guard over them out in the wilderness. And he closes that in verse 17. He says, Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So Abigail hears all of this, and she knows what she has to do. So she gathers food and wine, Nabal wasn't even willing to give David water, but she gets wine for David. She gets all of this together, and she starts rushing down the road as quickly as she can, hoping she can catch David on the road before it's too late. And you have to realize what an act of courage this is for her, a lone woman, to go and meet this band of warriors. Like David is ready for battle. He is ready to kill, and she's going to go alone to him and to 400 men who are waiting for their plunder. And she, throw, she comes to David and she throws herself on the ground. She gives him the food and the wine that she's brought and she begs for mercy for herself and her husband and all of their men. She gives them their portion And then she closes in verse 28, saying, Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Abigail is certain that the Lord is going to establish a sure house for David. Nabal, the fool, calls David a runaway slave, hiding out in the wilderness. But the wise Abigail recognizes that despite his circumstances, David is God's anointed king. The foolish and the wicked in Israel may not recognize it yet, but the righteous and wise do. David will be king, and it's the Lord who will establish him. And Abigail is certain of this, she says, because David has been fighting the Lord's battles, not his own. What did David do when he, when he came to their wilderness? He immediately started shepherding, protecting those who needed the most protection, and who had nothing to offer him. This was also meant to be a reminder for David. David, you've been fighting God's battles because you're God's anointed. 
don't be like Saul and think that being God's anointed gives you the license to do whatever you, seems like it will serve you best. God told Saul he was going to take the kingdom away from him and give it to someone better. David, be better. Be the kind of anointed king that God wants, the kind of anointed king that fights the Lord's battles. Be the man Saul never was. You are God's anointed. He's chosen you. Fight his battles. Build up his kingdom. Don't try to build up your own kingdom. Don't take by force what you think is yours by right. Leave all that to the Lord. You be about the business of building up his kingdom and wait for him to build up yours. And when the Lord does build up your kingdom, David, when he establishes your house and your throne, which he is certainly going to do, then you can just rejoice and give thanks to the Lord for what he has done, rather than be plagued with guilt knowing that you took it by force and the shedding of blood. David hears all this, and like other times in his life, when he's confronted with his sin, he immediately repents. In verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. David repents. He immediately casts aside his vengeance. And unlike Saul, who was ready to execute his son Jonathan in order to keep his foolish oath, David recognizes the foolishness of the oath he made and sets it aside. And Abigail returns home. And ironically, we're told that she finds Nabal feasting like a king. Once again, the true king is left out in the wilderness, and the false and foolish king is at the feast. He's so drunk, there's no point in talking to him. So she waits until the morning when he's sobered up and tells him what happened. And he's so shaken by how narrow an escape he had from death that it says he became like a stone. But his escape from death wasn't for long because we're told then that after 10 days, the Lord struck him and he died. Then as we come into chapter 26, we meet David's old friends, the Ziphites, again, who are betraying him again. It seems like David has gone back to the rock of Hakaliah. He can't help but, be, but come back to this rock of escape. And he had to know the Ziphites were going to see him, and he had to know that they were going to betray him again like they did. But that's the rock of escape. 
And so he goes back. And like I said, the Ziphites immediately go to Saul and tell him that David's come back. And Saul comes out again with his army of 3,000 chosen men. And this time, David decides he's going to go on the offensive a little bit. He's not attacking Saul, but he wants to do some reconnaissance. So Saul and his army are encamped one night. And David is standing there looking over the camp with two of his men. And he decides that he wants to go down into the camp. So he takes one of them, Abishai, with him. And they start making their way into the heart of the camp. This is the exact reversal of last time. Saul unwittingly walked into David's hands and didn't know about it. This time David knowingly and willingly walks into Saul's camp. And you can imagine the anxiety they must have felt, their hearts pumping, the adrenaline coursing through them as they make their way past the first centuries and everybody's asleep, but they know the slightest sound and they're dead. And so they start picking their way through as quiet as they can, daring not even to take a full breath. And at the heart of the camp, they find Saul sleeping on the ground. Surrounded by his army, he's in as much peril as he was alone in the cave. And once again, David is tempted to take the kingdom that's been promised to him. His companion Abishai takes a different approach this time. He says, look, you don't want to raise your hand against God's anointed. It's fine. I know a loophole. I'll kill him. Your hands will be clean, David. There will be no blood shed by you. I'll pin him to the ground. I will send my spear straight through his heart. He'll never know what hit him. You just say the word. You'll be innocent. You didn't do it. Let me kill him. Enough is enough. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of being the king in the wilderness? Aren't you tired of the running and the hiding? God has promised you the kingdom. Just let me do it. And David still refuses. David is content to wait on the Lord. He does, however, take Saul's spear and his water jug with him, showing that once again, Saul's life was in his hands. He took his spear, his means of defense. He took his water, his source of life in the dry wilderness. And they make their way back out of the camp. And once they're a safe way is away, David calls out to the camp. But this time he doesn't call out directly to Saul. He calls out to his commander, Abner, and starts mocking him. 
Abner, you call yourself a soldier? You call yourself Saul's commander and you let the enemy just waltz right into the camp? What kind of man are you, Abner? And Abner's roused from his deep sleep and he has no idea what's going on. He's looking around. But Saul hears David's voice and recognizes it again. And so, so now that Saul is awake, David calls out to him in verse 19 of chapter 26. Therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the lord, for they have driven me out of they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. David saying, Saul, I have been misjudged and mistreated and slandered and betrayed. More than that, I've been driven out of God's kingdom so that I no longer have a portion of the covenant. Right? If you remember back to our Advent series in Ruth, being tied to the land was a symbol of being tied to God's covenant with Abraham. David's saying, you've driven me so far out into the wilderness. I've been cut off not just from my people, but from the Lord. What have I done to deserve this treatment from you? And Saul answers in verse 21. Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. David doesn't return, though. Again, he knows that Saul's remorse is temporary and not true repentance. So he won't return, but he does give Saul his spear back. Verse 22 to 24, David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. He gives him back his spear, showing that God may have given your life into my hands, but I am freely and willingly giving it back to you. I am content to wait on the Lord. And notice he doesn't say just as my life, or excuse me, just as your life was precious in my sight, may my life be precious in your sight. No, he says, may, may my life be precious in the Lord's sight. He knows where his refuge and his hope is. 
And our passage ends at the end of chapter 26. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. David remains the king in the wilderness. He's the Lord's anointed, but for now he has no kingdom or palace. That's okay. Because David knows that his calling is to fight the Lord's battles, not his own. And he knows that his position as God's anointed is secure, regardless of how badly his circumstances seem to not match up with it. David knows the kind of God that he serves. Throughout all of his runnings, all of his hidings, he keeps coming back to the hill of Hakaliah, the rock of escape. At every sign of trouble, his first instinct is to run back to the rock. And when David came to the end of his life, in his last song, he sang that the Lord is my rock. And I have to believe that this time in his life, this constant running back to the rock of escape, was forefront in his mind when he wrote Psalms like Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock in whom I take refuge. Or Psalm 19, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 27, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will lift me high upon a rock. And that's just a couple of the like 30-some psalms where David talks about God being his rock. At the first sign of trouble from Saul, he ran back to the rock. But he knew what his true rock was. He knew that as long as he could run to the Lord, he could wait and be safe there. The Lord is his salvation, so it was okay to simply wait and see what the Lord would do. The Lord had promised to hand the kingdom over to him. So he's content to wait. Because no circumstances could change the fact that he was God's anointed and the Lord would make a sure house for him. And our God is a rock, a place of refuge in the wilderness. And more than that, he's also, like David, the king in the wilderness. Like David, our king was cast out into the wilderness, outside of God's covenant relationship. The difference, though, is that our king went willingly. He wasn't driven into exile. He submitted to it willingly. And why did he become the king in the wilderness? Because we're children of the wilderness. David's ragtag group were people who had been forced out by Saul's regime. But we were people who liked living in the wilderness. And so our king submitted to exile in the wilderness to make us his own. Like David, our king has a shepherd's heart. 
Even while he was an outcast in the wilderness, he was moved to compassion when he saw the helplessness of his people. Even after he had emptied himself, he never tired of caring for those who most needed it. Like David, our king was tempted in the wilderness, offered multiple opportunities to take the easy way out, to skip over the suffering and the pain, to take what had already been promised to him. And like David, our king was content to wait for God the Father to hand him the crown of victory. David was a good king. He was a man after God's own heart. But he was imperfect. God had told the Israelites, if you, have, if you want a king, he's going to take from you. He's going to take and take and take. And while most of what we've seen here is David not taking and waiting on the Lord, what we, left, what we skipped over in chapter 25 was that after Nabal died, it says that he took Abigail for his wife. And he took another wife. Already David's starting to fall into that temptation that God warned them the kings would fall into of taking for himself. But everything that made David a good king is found perfectly in our king. And knowing the kind of king that we have enables us to be like David in all his best qualities. At the first sign of trouble, David's first instinct was to run back to the rock and wait. Is that our first instinct too? To run back to him and just wait? Or do we seek refuge somewhere else? At the first sign of trouble, when disaster strikes our marriage or our job or our finances or our health, where is our refuge? And the thing is, nothing that David did in these three chapters makes any sense from an earthly perspective. No advisor would tell David, hey, if your enemy is served up to you on a silver platter, you should just let him go. Twice. No advisor would tell him, hey, while you're waiting, while you're on the run, the best way to build up a base of support is to help the lowliest people. And when you do ask for help from someone in power, go to the biggest jerk around. None of this makes any sense. None of this is what you would do to go about gaining a kingdom. And yet David is content to flee to the rock and simply wait. He was content to build the Lord's kingdom, to fight the Lord's battles, and wait and see how God would provide for him. Are we willing to do the same? And the text doesn't say it, but I can easily imagine 
at some point throughout these three chapters, David calling out to the Lord and saying, Lord, why does it have to be this hard? Like, if I'm your anointed, if you're going to give me the kingdom, why does it have to be this hard? Why can't it just be easier? Like I said, I don't know if David said that, but I can imagine it so easily because I know I've said it myself more than once. But God was doing something bigger with David. Of course, God could have made it easy. He could have made David's ascension to the throne seamless. But God wasn't satisfied with just making David a king. He was going to make David into a different kind of king altogether. The Israelites wanted a king so that they could be like the other nations. God was going to give them a king whose heart beat like God's heart. The kind of, inst the kind of king whose instinct was to act like a shepherd. The kind of king who would protect and care for his people instead of always taking from them. God was making a king who was the kind of king that would draw his people's hearts and minds to their future king who is coming. And the same is true of us when we want to say, God, why can't it just be easier? Because he isn't satisfied with simply fixing our circumstances. He isn't satisfied with just making us happy people. He's making us into a different kind of people altogether. A royal priesthood. A people who can not just reflect his glory, but, could, but who can fellowship with him in all his glory for eternity. We live in a fallen and broken world that's been ravaged by sin. And we all too often find ourselves feeling like we're out in the wilderness, maybe even feeling like we're so far out in the wilderness that like David, we've been cut off from the covenant altogether. Do we run to the Lord first? And having run to him, are we content to just wait and see what he will do? Or do we feel like we have to do something to fix it? David was the Lord's anointed. From an earthly perspective, his circumstances did not match up with his status. But David recognized that it was because he was God's anointed that his circumstances didn't matter. Nothing could change his status, and so he was free to just wait on the Lord. When I close this with Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we're in the wilderness, this is true of us. You are God's elect, his anointed. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Run to the rock. Run to your king in the wilderness and wait for him.